Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. My interview today is with Malcolm Fair, who is a collector of historical fencing books, also a fencer himself and proprietor of the National Fencing Museum here in the UK. But before we get on with that, I should just mention that yesterday, as this goes live on August the 6th, yesterday on August the 5th, my new book, The Windsor Method, Principles of Solo Training, went live on all platforms in all reasonable formats. So hardback and paperback and large print and regular print, etc. Haven't got an audio book done of it yet because they are very expensive and time consuming to produce. And so I'm basically waiting for the book to make some money before I can drop all of that money into producing the audiobook. So let me read you the blurb. The secret behind all great artists is how they practice. The Windsor Method, The Principles of Solo Training, is the self-help book for people who want to add years to their life and life to their years. In this refreshingly straightforward and gentle guide, best-selling author and world-renowned historical swordsmanship instructor, Dr. Guy Windsor, lays out the fundamental principles behind personal development and excellence in any field. How? By establishing a solid foundation and a step-by-step approach to mechanics and training. This is the Windsor Method. Use it to guide your practice and elevate your skills. And if that doesn't make you want to go and buy it, I don't know what will. You can find links to the book on whatever platforms you particularly like to buy your books from. Of course, I recommend your local bookshop or even your library. I mean, your library can stock it for you. If you go to guywindsor.net forward slash solo, you will find links to the books in various places and the ISBN number if you would like to order it from your local library. It's actually really good for authors when people get their books from the library. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's absolutely true. Because firstly, the library buys a copy if it doesn't already have one. And secondly, it gets the work out in front of all sorts of people who might not stumble across it on the various book buying places where people go. I'm not even going to mention the name of the world's longest river. So get it from the library, get it from your bookshop. I don't mind where you get it from, but I definitely think you should go and get it. GuyWindsor.net forward slash solo. Now, without further ado, on with the show. I'm here today with Malcolm Fair, who is a fencer, a collector of fencing history, and also owner of perhaps the finest collection of fencing books I have ever been in the presence of, and founder of Britain's National Fencing Museum. So without further ado, Malcolm, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, I'm in a small village called Hanley Swan, which is near Malvern in Worcestershire in the Midwest of England. Uh, it's a lovely rural setting. I've actually been there a couple of times, listeners, but, you know, I still have to ask because, you know, you've not had the pleasure of being there. But am I right in thinking that your museum is actually still open? It is by appointment, yeah. except that with social distancing, it's not possible to show people around without being fairly close to it. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so, but if anybody's in the... In the vicinity of Hanley Swan, they, they could make an appointment and pop in and have a look. Is that correct? Indeed. 
Yeah. And if you are ever in that area, people, you should definitely go because it is awesome. So, how did you get started collecting fencing books? Uh, well, I started collecting first weapons and prints in mm-hmm. the mid-1970s. And then in 1979, I stumbled across Aylwood's English Master of Arms, the classic work on the development of fencing in Britain. And he mentioned that one of the rarest books, and the only one written by a fighting master of defence, was Donald McBain's The Expert Swordsman's Companion. Uh, one of my favourite books. Yes. Well, I um, determined to try and find it. And I put the word out among a number of antiquarian book dealers. This was, of course, in the days long before Google or A-Books or other modern means of tracking books. Um, and waited for any replies. Some months later, a Scottish dealer rang me to say he had bought a copy at an auction in Edinburgh and was selling it for £150. Oh, I want that! Oh, no! 150 quid for McBain! That's uh, not that fair! I had, <laughs> but I, I had not paid more than £20 for any item of fencing history. And so I said I'd think about it for a couple of days. Um, and then I popped around to the V&A Museum where they had a copy from the Alfred Hutton bequest. And it was indeed a fascinating book by one of, uh, by a soldier in Marlborough's army. Um, but it did include uh, a portrait of the author and 22 crudely drawn plates. So I rang the dealer back and to check whether his copy had the illustrations. And he said it didn't. Ah. And the auction catalogue had not mentioned illustrations at all. Um, so he was proposing to send it back, to take it back to the auction house and ask for his money back. Unless, he said, I wanted it for what he had paid, which was £90. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> bearing in mind the rarity and the fact that I didn't feel the illustrations added much to its value, I uh, took the plunge and snapped it up. And very glad I am that I did, because I have never seen another copy on the market in 40 years. Yeah, and that is that is the book. I mean, my first book is called The Swordsman's Companion, which I published in 2004, and I took the title as an homage to McBain. He was the first, yeah. um, first historical fencing treatise that I discovered for myself in a library so there's a copy of the National Library of Scotland and I actually wrote an essay on it for my um, my English degree in like 1994 so and, and I managed to get it photocopied and, and sort of distributed so it sort of became a bit more widely known in the 90s but yeah that is it, it's just this fantastic and, and the autobiography in it yeah his, his story is it's absolutely outrageous it's like nothing else in the in the world of fencing books. Right. Great. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely unique. Um, and actually, for people listening, um, a couple of years ago, I went to Malcolm's Glorious Museum and I took photographs of a lot of his books, as in every single page carefully photographed. And I did photograph that McBain from start to finish. And those pictures are available on my website. I will put a link in the show notes. So if anyone wants to see like 
the pages of Malcolm's glorious book than they can. So, um, okay. A copy of McBain for 90 quid, which is just outrageous, got you started on the collection. Um, it's, it's a fantastic place to start and I'm extremely jealous. But um, every collector I know has a, a one that got away story. So what, what books slipped out of your grasp that you would most like to get back? Well, um, not really a book. I think I've, I've kept, I've grabbed hold of every book that came my way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose the object that I most regret not buying when I had the chance was a practice swept hilt rapier. <gasps> uh, okay. These are like hen's teeth. And in 1979, just as I was starting to collect seriously, one was included in a collection of arms and armor put together by an American stuntman. Um, And it came up at Christie's in London. But it was the low end of the estimate was 800 pounds then, which is, what, 4,000 pounds now or something. Right. Way beyond my means. And most other people, because it didn't sell. Oh. And it was eventually included with a bunch of other unsold items and sold to a Californian dealer who I tracked down. And I wrote to him saying, of course, the Christie's estimate was way over the top. And, but, I, you know, I might be prepared to pay £400 for it. Mm-hmm. And he replied saying the price was now 1200 Ah, 1979. So it escaped me, and I've never seen another one on the market. Of course. So was this was this actually uh, was this from a film set or was this an antique? No, this was an antique, a genuine 1600 I, oh. practice rapier. Oh. I think I think I've seen two of those in museums. There's one in the tower. Yes, um, in, in, yeah, the and there's one armies. in the V&A. Yeah. Can't think of any others. But yeah, there are a few around. in Italy, I believe. Okay, um, but I've never seen one at an auction since. <laughs> Still, these <laughs> things happen. <laughs> I mean, I, I know you have kids. You could have maybe sold one of those to raise the cash. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> I should have taken out a second mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure Val would have <laughs> appreciated that. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so I mean. Your collection includes like dozens and dozens of absolute gems, particularly in the books area. Um, but um, what's your absolute top favourite? If you had to give uh, one one book, which one would it be? One book. That's that's a hard decision to make. Sure. But I suppose it would have to be Thibaut's Academy de Lepe, sixteen twenty-eight. Okay. That is the supreme masterpiece among fencing books. And one of the greatest illustrated books in the history of printing. Yeah. I mean, it, it has, what, 45 enormous double plate engravings measuring 70 centimeters by 48. And each showing up to 17 pairs of swordsmen with rapiers 
I mean, it's it's just a wonderful book, and these illustrations were probably drawn by Thibaut himself, um, and the prints produced by 16 of the best engravers from across what is now the Netherlands, Belgium, and Germany. So the copy I have is bound in a contemporary gold tooled calf binding. It's just beautiful. Yes. So how did I get hold of it? Go on, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. They, they go for about uh, $120,000 at the moment. Yeah, well, um, I bought mine in 1995 after a chance encounter with an American dealer at an auction where I was trying unsuccessfully to acquire two Italian books <clears throat> but was outbid by a collector on the telephone. However, he happened to be standing next to me and noticed my interest in the fencing books. And he said, well, he had a few fencing books for sale, and including a Tebow, which he had bought sight unseen, and then discovered that one plate was missing. <gasps> and he only dealt in complete rare books. So he was looking to pass it on for what he had paid for it, which was then £10,000. Ouch! Oh, this was far beyond what I could afford. Um, But I managed to acquire it by selling several rare books already in my possession to a wealthy former international fencer, who had started to build a fencing library. And these rare books included De Grassi, Brucius, Marcelli, Kahn, and Brea. All these I sacrificed in order <laughs> to bring the price down to a more manageable £1,700 right. for a Tebow, which I thought, wow, I cannot pass up this opportunity because, as you say, The prices have just rocketed all the time. Yeah. So I was very pleased. And then 10 years after, I found the missing plate on eBay by a dealer who'd bought the whole book and broken up it. Bastards. Oh, those those people have got their legs broken and their eyes broken. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But anyway, I bought the missing plate and I had it bound into my copy to make it complete. So that's, that's my... Favorite book, I suppose. Yeah, and and I remember when we photographed it. It is a big, heavy book. I mean, it's, the it thing is. is enormous. And just finding a place where we could actually get the camera in place, and, and the, we actually went outside and we put like a blanket on the ground and photographed it outside so we could get the light. It was yeah, uh, wow. That's that's a hell of a book. But I seem to recall you've got a second copy of Tibble somewhere. Well, it's it's a skeleton. Mm-hmm. The it is a the bind the bound book with all the text, but all the double page engravings were taken out and sold separately. So I just found the skeleton in a provincial auction, and even that for the beautiful woodcut capital letters and mm. other bits is worth having. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, mean, I guess it would be possible now to pick up the the um, 
the illustrations and have them bound back in. Yeah, but each each plate now is selling for a thousand pounds. That's right, forty five of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but then you got a book that's worth like a hundred and twenty. So you know, you, you yeah, probably come out ahead. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, finding every illustration might be pretty tricky. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I'm pleased to have a complete copy. Yeah, and it is a it's a thing of magnificence, and um, you have all sorts of. So fencing treatises that I wouldn't have even thought of, like Senese, for example. How did you mm. get hold of? I mean, I've only ever that's the only copy of Senese I've ever seen. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I've got a half a dozen 16th-century books and a dozen or more 17th-century. Most of the great Italian rapier treaties. Fabris, Capoferro, Giganti, Alfieri, Zanese. And the 16th century ones, um, Marozzo's second edition, undated, but generally acknowledged to be 1540. And his 1568 reprint, Arte del Armi, with the new copper plate engravings. As well as Agrippa, 1553, Di Grassi, 1573, Vigiani, 1575. So these are just amazing, rare books that never come on the market again. Um, so how I got hold of them uh, is a long story, but... Go on then, yeah, we have the time. Absolutely, we have the time. Um... I will tell you how I put together the greatest deal of my collecting career. Uh, and it follows three different strands of information that I came across during the 1980s. The first arrived in 1982. And one lunchtime, I entered an antiquarian bookshop in London's Charing Cross Road and asked the usual question, do you have any fencing books? Mm-hmm and was presented with the 1898 facsimile edition of George Silver's Paradoxes of Defense. Mm. Um, And this particular copy had once belonged to Archie Corbell, twice British Sabre champion and a passionate collector of fencing history, who between the wars amassed the largest ever collection of fencing and dueling books. And he had bought several copies of the facsimile to present as gifts And on the inside cover, he had pasted a typewritten list of the owners of the 10 original silvers that he knew about in the 1930s. Oh, wow. Three were in museums, three with dealers in the days when, you know, you could go to a dealer and buy one. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about the 1599 Paradox of Defense. 1599, yes. Wow, lovely. Which, you know, I have not seen, I don't think has appeared since the war. No. It's all been... Snapped up by museums. Um, There were, I think, two with, um, two in libraries and two with private collectors. One, Corbel had found himself, and the second one was in the hands of a very good ambidextrous fencer, a collector of fencing books and one of the richest men in Britain, 
the 8th Baron Howard de Walden. Right. I noted the, these names and I put the facsimile back in my library and uh, carried on collecting where I could. And then the second strand emerged in 1985 when I went to the auction in Paris of a French fencing master's library. A few months earlier, I had interested the fencer whose purchases helped me buy the Tebow in starting to collect fencing books. And he wasn't able to go to Paris, but he gave me £5,000 to buy whatever I could for him at this auction. The star item was uh, one of three volumes of fencing and dueling anecdotes written by Arsène Vigien, mm -hmm. the leading fencing master in late 19th century Paris, and the first great collector of fencing history. And he had commissioned the fencing artist Frédéric Regamé to paint several watercolors to illustrate his stories in these three volumes. Um, one had escaped Vigian's library and had found its way into the collection of this fencing master, which he was now selling. Uh, it was £1,500. I couldn't afford it myself, but I bought it for my fellow collector. <laughs> that must have hurt. It was, it did. <laughs> but, you know, there was a limit to, to what I, at the yeah, time. Yeah, sure. Um, I didn't have the money. So a further four years pass, and the third strand that brings this all together appeared in a Sunday newspaper in the form of a profile of the ninth Lord Howard de Walden. So I remembered the name from my copy of the silver facsimile, and I wondered whether this man, the son of the eighth baron, the collector, had inherited the original 1599 silver that his father had owned. So I wrote to him, just asking whether the book was still in the family's possession. And he wrote back a charming letter saying he hadn't the faintest idea whether he had the silver or not. But his father's fencing books were all at the family manor house in Berkshire, and I was welcome to have a look for it. There. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, needless to say, I was down there like a shot. <laughs> but imagine, you have a 1599 silver and you don't even know. That's right. That's, That's insane. Right. <laughs> he, he wasn't really interested in fencing sure. books, but he knew his father had collected them and they were all in this yeah, yeah. converted barn. So, uh, yeah, I went down there and he took me over to the barn, which was a treasure trove of antiques, paintings and leather-bound books. And he pointed me in the direction of the fencing books and left me to it. Wow. So two hours passed in a flash as I examined some of the rarest books on swordplay, each one in immaculate condition, and many bearing the signature Vigian on the flyleaf. Oh, wow. And I realized that this must be the long-lost Vigian library, which had disappeared in 1913. Nobody had known what had happened to it. So the Baron had bought it. Yeah. Vigian had spent his considerable income as the most sought-after fencing master in Paris on acquiring the best examples of every rare book on the subject he could find, as well as original paintings, prints and weapons. But towards the end of his life, he decided to sell up, and most items were dispersed at auction. <laughs> 
but he had struck a deal with Lord Howard de Walden to sell his library of 180 books en bloc. Oh my God. And so they were transported to England, unknown to anyone else. Wow. To join the eighth baron's already substantial collection. Ironically, Silver's paradoxes of defense, which had led me to the collection, was not in the library. Oh, wow. But it was later found somewhere in the house. <laughs> someone had taken it out and left it in a bedroom somewhere. Oh, God. Oh, my God, that is so unfair. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, some months after my discovery, the American historian and leading authority on the Italian school of fencing, William Gautler, mm-hmm. came to stay with me while he ran a fencing workshop. And I arranged with the ninth baron to show him the library. He was duly staggered by the quality and rarity of the books assembled by the two collectors. He suggested I should offer to catalogue the books for his lordship and persuade him to allow the rarest books to be microfilmed so that research students around the world could gain access to them. So Lord Howard Wallen agreed, and then every Sunday afternoon for six months, I drove the 70 miles to his manor house to pore over the books with the help of Tim's bibliography and record their essential details. And at the end of it all, I discovered two things. One, there were numerous duplicate volumes created when the eighth baron merged the Vision Library with his own. Wow. And two, only two of Vision's three volumes incorporating these original watercolors were in the library, the missing book being the star item I had bought at auction four years earlier for my fellow collector. I mentioned this to his lordship and added that it might be possible to obtain it at no cost if he was prepared to part with some of his duplicates. And although he was not interested in fencing books as such, the idea of completing his father's collection appealed to him. And he said, well, pick whatever duplicates you think um, would persuade this chap to part with his um, original, unique <clears throat> book. Yeah, it's a good so thing I you're an honest out. man, Malcolm. It's a good thing you're... You could have walked away with a crateful. Well, yeah, but I, I, I picked out <laughs> half a dozen of the rarest works, including Marozzo and Senesi and Leoncourt, mm-hmm. three or four others, worth ten times what this chap had paid mm-hmm. for the unique Vigian. And I said, was he interested in exchanging? Well, it was an offer he couldn't refuse. Sure. Because he would never see Marozzo or certainly Senese. I would take Senese over Vigil any day. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, he said yes. I left the duplicates with him. I presented the missing volume to the ninth baron together with my catalogue of his father's collection. And he was delighted. And then he asked me how much he owed me for the work I had done. And I replied, nothing, because it really had been a real pleasure to research these books and to discover where the Vision Library was. But I said that if I might acquire one or two of the remaining duplicates, I would be more than happy. 
And he then said words I hardly dared hope to hear. Why don't you take the rest of them and we'll call it quits? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) It was the perfect deal. No money changed hands. Perfect. Everyone was delighted with their transaction. That's fantastic. And I've I've handled some of those books, probably all of them, um, and they have this fantastic, rock-solid sort of early 20th century bindings that they've been they've been rebound into for the Duke's library. Yes, they're, the Baron's they're all in Morocco leather, tooled leather, mm. with some, by some of the best binders in Paris and London. So they are just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this was uh, how my, the core of my library was Wow, that's that's a combination of of luck and but okay. But if you hadn't have put in the work collecting and traveling and studying and what have you, then you you wouldn't have been placed to make the the catalog anyway. So I guess no. If if I hadn't bought a, a missing by chance a missing a, visual a volume missing, I would have had nothing to offer. Right, the Baron, except a catalog. That wouldn't have uh, yeah. been so special. Wow. There, there was, um, actually, there was a sting in the tail, eventually, because I took all his rarest books to the Royal Armouries, then in the Tower of London, to be microfilmed. And they took six months over it, but in due course, they said, well, we've finished the microfilm and If you'd like to come and collect the books, here they are. So I picked them up again, took them back to the family manor house and left them with his lordship. And that was the last time I saw him. He died in 1991, I think. Um, And after his death, I received a letter from the family solicitor saying that they had discovered an inventory dated 1946 that the eighth baron had put together just before he died. And they had compared this with the catalogue I had left. And there's all these books missing. (laughs) And they said, yeah, there are rather more books in 1946 than there are now. So... How how can you um, explain this discrepancy? So I was pleased to be able to do so by writing back, enclosing a letter from Lord Howard de Walden, stating that he had given most of the duplicates to me, having taken the precaution at the time to ask for such a note in case the family ever queried the transaction. That's all. So then I thought that that was that. But then came the sting, another letter from the solicitor saying that back in 1946, the family had entered into an agreement with the Inland Revenue, whereby the fencing books would be exempt from 70% estate duty, provided they were never sold. And if they were, the government would demand the hefty duty. It was a way of ensuring that works of art considered to be of national importance stayed in the country. 
and by giving me the duplicates, Lord Howard de Walden had unwittingly passed on the same obligation. Ah, okay. Now, the family had happily paid the duty on the six books deemed to have been sold to my fellow collector in exchange for the missing volume. Okay. Um, And then they agreed that the fencing library should go on long-term loan to the Wallace Collection, where it remains. Um, But my duplicates were seen to be a gift, not for anything in exchange. And so, just like the Howard de Walden Library, it can never be sold without most of their value passing to the Treasury. And HM Customs Nexus periodically check that I still have them. Really? Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, it doesn't worry me because I I would never think of selling them. Right. But it just shows that we are temporary custodians of beautiful things. Well, quite. And also, it's excellent leverage. Like, you can't be pressured into selling the books because most of the value will go. Yes. So so you have to keep them for the rest of your life. Oh, no. Which what a I shame. I'm happy to do. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, now, one of the things that really strikes me about your collection, and it struck me three times over when I actually went to see it, is you have this absolutely astonishing collection of books, but also of like fencing equipment and memorabilia and things going back. It really, some of them are really very old, and you have this like outbuilding with all these everything displayed. Most collectors don't open their collection to the public. That's not how they they normally tend to kind of like keep it secret, keep it safe. So I'm curious, what what led you to actually like start this? National Fencing Museum. How did that come about? Well, um, while we were living in London, my collection of fencing history was gradually taking over the house. So when I retired in 2000 and we decided to move out of London, my wife insisted that wherever we settled, there had to be a separate building to house the collection. (laughs) So by chance, we found this property with a bungalow at the back, which had been used as offices. And I was able to convert that in, to house the whole collection. I thought, well, why not make it a museum? In fact, it is the only museum in, of fencing history in Britain, so I'll call it the National Fencing Museum. Quite right. And then I put out, because I was editing the sword of the British Fencing Association's magazine at the time, I mentioned that, you know, this collection that this fencing history was available for any fencers who were interested and uh, and various people over the years have come down to look at it coaches have shown children around and uh, older fencers who've become interested in the history after their fencing careers are over have come down but it's never going to attract the hordes of people who go to a football museum or a golfing museum. <laughs> so it's, it's not a commercial operation, but it's something I'm happy to show others who are interested. Yeah, and we've, we've talked a lot about the books, which is actually my, I guess, my main sort of the stuff in your museum that I am most interested in. But you also have a ton of 
other things. Like I seem to recall there was there's this sort of device that you can attach a foil to and you can sort of do fencing against the wall with this device poking it foil at yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, and a, a box set of um, dueling swords, if I'm remembering right. Yes, yes. I mean, I ha- I've just, on the whole, collected just fencing things, but occasionally um, dueling epées turn up that are mm-hmm. irresistible. And I, I guess I must have more than 500 weapons. Yeah, a lot of small swords, as I recall. One, one small sword, and then I did indulge myself during lockdown okay. in buying a swept hilt rapier, knowing that oh, I, will never find, I will never find an actual practice one. But uh, in a provincial auction house, one dated around 1600, uh, swept hilt rapier looking very nice uh, it fits beautifully between the two big Tebow prints that I have <laughs> which show rapiers of the same period <laughs> uh, that's thought, it Malcolm uh, I'm, I'm, I'm coming back <laughs> to Hanley Swan <laughs> as soon as I can <laughs> it's only yeah. about a five hour drive from where I live <laughs> I'll be around tomorrow yes, <laughs> yes. yes. so um so you you just you bought this on an online auction? No, well, uh, yes, it was online, but then mm-hmm. luckily it was in Stoke-on-Trent, not in America or right. Italy. So I was able to drive up and um, collect it. What's it like? Oh, it's it. I mean, it's a plane. It's not sure. beautifully embellished, but it's a good, honest plane. 1600 or so swept hilt rapier and I love the lines of it I think the swept hilt is the most elegant form of sword that I I know of yeah so so have you like picked up and played with it a little bit well I've I've held it and I've realized how heavy it is compared with a small sword yeah Uh, (laughs) you my son has held it he said he's a fencer and he thinks how on earth do you do quick parry repost with it? I said, well, that's not how you fenced with rapiers. <laughs> but uh, it is very different from uh, everything that followed after the small sword and modern fencing weapons, of course, are much, much lighter. Sure. Uh, so what is your, other than your beautiful new swept up, which is, of course, like your current pride and joy, what, what would be your like favourite quirky fencing memorabilia stuff that you you've picked up uh, uh, well what I'm trying to think what I mean there is this fencing dummy which you yeah that's what I was thinking of I mean that's that's a French full size dummy with an, a hand or an arm that comes down and in the, the hand there's cut a slot to hold a French foil so you could, and it's on a, a, a spring, so you could fit that originally against a wall and do beat attacks and other movements against it. Now the, the joint in the elbow is so weak, it can't hold the foil any longer. <laughs> but uh, it is an interesting bit of miscellaneous that uh, used to be available. And where did you find it? 
I found it in America. It came shipped in the days when shipping costs didn't cost twice as much as the items. Uh, it came over from America, where someone had brought it back from Paris, no doubt, in the early 20th century. Wow. Okay. You never know where these things are going to turn up. No, no. Oh, wow. So I need to get back to the museum, clearly. Um, okay. Now, I have a, a couple of questions that I tend to finish up with. And the first is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on? Well, I suppose <laughs> I haven't acted on converting the attic of the bungalow into another floor to allow the museum to expand. <laughs> <laughs> that will never happen because it's too expensive and there are too few visitors to make it worthwhile. But ideally, I need another floor. Yeah, to, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so... Four rooms so, is not enough. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah, and actually quite a lot of listeners from of this podcast are actually in the UK, so you might be getting some additional phone calls and, and visits and what have you um, right. as, as people hear about this. Because uh, I'm guessing, I mean, you, you don't really have an advertising budget for the museum, do you? No. No. Uh, just a website which people will stumble across or not. So yeah, if somebody did give you a million quid, to spend on your museum, what would you do with it? Well, I suppose I would move it online. Okay. I would arrange to have every item professionally photographed and videoed in 3D <laughs> so that those interested in fencing history around the world can look at these books and weapons and paintings and prints uh, and medals and as if they were handling the objects themselves. And I would equip two purpose-designed mobile display cases with a selection of objects to tour schools and sports centers with a periodically changing exhibition of fencing history. I mean, that's... I would just like to make fencing history better known. That's, that's a really good use of the money. And, and well, for, you must know the Oakshot collection. Mm-hmm. Um, that was picked up by a couple of friends of mine in the States who run the Oakshot Institute. And they do go around with great big boxes full of these swords so that people can pick them up and handle them and yeah. get a sense yeah. of what swords are really like. Um, and I guess we've, we've sort of made a start on your grand project by photographing, I think it was like 23 of your books. Yeah. Which took, yeah. but just 23 out of like three or 400 took, yes. took three of us like two full days. Mm. Um, so there's, there's, yes. there's, there's quite a lot of time investment to be made there. Yes. And if you think of weapons that need to be looked at in three dimensions, right? Zooming in on marks on the blade and looking at the hilts in more detail. I mean, that's, going to take a lot of time with 500 weapons to go through <laughs> yeah well I guess you'd, so you'd start go. with you'd start with like a dozen of the best examples yeah yeah um, I mean it's like, like most music like if you go to the tower or well, the Royal Army's Museum up in, in Leeds as it is now yeah. they have so many more weapons in the vaults than they do on the walls or in the cases of course. so yeah. I, I think it's not unreasonable to like start 
reasonably small and have like, I don't know, maybe. I'm talking myself into a job, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just need to spend a, a month or two here. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Do it. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I, I, I shall actually give it some thought because there, there's a lot there's lots that can be done these days particularly with like virtual reality where yeah. you, you can you can take re- really high resolution pictures and you can sort of put it together into like a like an experience so people can feel like they're moving around the object and it can I mean I don't think anything replaces the sense of actually picking it up no but no. but if you go to a museum you don't normally get to pick up the weapons anyway you just get to look at them that's true and actually, with these like high resolution pictures and stuff, you can often see more detail through these virtual reality things than you can if you actually look at the object. Because if you're not taking it out mm-hmm. of the case and using like magnifying glasses and things, you often can't see those little details. Um, ah, yes, that would be. So yes, there's, there's lots to be done still. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And do you have any any like plans for future? Um, so I, I take it you're still collecting. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, if anything uh, that I haven't come across pops up, then I'm always keen to add it to the collection. <laughs> well, I see. I have I have a, a project you might be interested in. Um, I am currently producing an audio book of Silver's Paradoxes of Defense. Right, yeah. two versions, one in modern pronunciation and one yeah. in original pronunciation. So I've got an actor called Ben Crystal who does original pronunciation Shakespeare. Um, yeah. And his dad's a linguist, and they've, they've basically figured out how, well, as close as we can establish, how people actually were speaking in London in the late 16th century. And he's mm-hmm. doing the original pronunciation read of Silver. So you can actually, like, just sit in an armchair with a glass of wine or something and have silver read to you pretty much the way it would have been done. I mean, most people in the 16th century experienced books by people reading them aloud because that was like TV back then. So, yeah. so it's like the next, I guess the, um, we've got, we've got like the 19th century facsimile, which is super useful. There've been other facsimiles since, but this is yeah. like taking it to the next kind of technological layer. Or the next, yeah. the next future of books with audio. So I should, I should definitely make sure you get a copy of that. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. Just to say that, uh, yeah, people are always welcome to come and visit the museum. Excellent. I will make sure they are aware of this. So thank you very much for joining me today, Malcolm. It's been a delight talking to you again. Okay, and you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Malcolm. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. And of course, speaking of books, you should definitely have a look at the new solo training book, which you can find at guywindsor.net forward slash solo. My patrons on Patreon already have the book, of course because they get pretty much everything I make, and usually before anyone else. So thanks again to all my lovely patrons there for their kind support of the show. It's really useful to me to know that people care about the show enough to actually throw some money at it. It doesn't have to be much, but every little does help. 
So join us there for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Dr. Amanda Taylor, who is the author of several academic papers that you might find interesting if you're into medieval stuff, especially medieval literature featuring knights. And she's the author of the forthcoming Domesticating War, Women, Medicine and Military Activity in Pre-Modern Europe. She also works with the Oakshot Institute, which is the custodian of Ewart Oakshot's extraordinary collection of antique swords. And one of the things she does with them is personally put original antique swords into people's hands, which is just a fantastically good thing to do. So you don't want to miss that episode. So subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while, you have, while you're there, if you have a minute, please rate the show or even review it. And best of all, if you know someone who you think might particularly enjoy this episode, email them a link to it or post it out on social media or something so they can find it because absolutely nothing helps more than word of mouth personal recommendations. So thanks for listening and I will see you next week.